0: Who knew that Law & Liberty wrote comedy? But clearly they do, as a new piece on Abraham Lincoln suggests. I'll talk about it on episode 763 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. All those can be found at Brian McClanahan or go to BrianMcClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audio book of the same title read by yours. Truly free gift to you just for giving me that email address. And, of course, when you're on the email address, or the email list, I should say, you get great coupons at McClanahan Academy. So, if you're on that email list now, you know... And I've got $200 off on my American Slavery course, which, by the way, closes a week from today. So, if you're not getting the class now, you're missing out. You need to get that class. One week from today, it closes. It's going to be an awesome live class. That means you get me live four times. You can talk to me, ask questions. We'll go over the material. It's so good, you're going to want it. So, head on over to McClanahanAcademy.com. You can also do that. Enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. It's also a great way to support the program if you purchase a class or 20 there. So uh, do that too, and that helps support the show. All right, well, let's talk about the topic. We're going to wrap up the week with this piece at Law & Liberty on Abraham Lincoln. Now, Law & Liberty publishes good things a lot. I mean, look, it's it's Liberty Fund. They do some good stuff, and Liberty Fund has some really good books, by the way, if you're looking for Uh, Some great books on American history or conservative philosophy or libertarian philosophy. They have a lot of stuff there. And uh, I I highly recommend you go over there and check it out. But every now and then they publish a clunker. And look, I like one of the uh, editors at Law and Liberty, John Grove. He wrote a great book on Calhoun. But this piece on Abraham Lincoln really is a clunker. And look, when you're going to write a positive book review for John Meacham... There's already a problem. John Meacham is the establishment's establishment historian. And what I mean by that is this guy will write everything positive about every establishment figure in American history you can think of, whether it's George H.W. Bush. Uh, You think John Meacham was one of the guys that wrote a eulogy for George H.W. Bush. Now, he also wrote a biography of George H.W. Bush. He's the establishment's establishment. He loves Abraham Lincoln. He's written, in, in fact it's thought that Meacham was involved. I know uh, Bichloss was also involved in this, but John Meacham was involved in the Dark Brandon speech that was given attacking conservatives. So here Law & Liberty is promoting this dope's work. And when you start talking about the Lincoln myth, there's really no bigger proponent out there than John Meacham. Maybe Alan Yelzo, uh, you could say, or you know some of these other establishment people, but... Um Meacham is awful on this. And so he's written this book that essentially tries to elevate Abraham Lincoln to a god. I mean, we've already done it. We've got his, his Parthenon sitting there in Washington, D.C. Uh, but John Meacham believes that Abraham Lincoln had a divine destiny in slaughtering one million Americans. Essentially, that's what he's arguing you, you can't make this up. I mean, this is what John Meacham is doing. And you've got a book review now at Law & Liberty that promotes and buttresses this particular argument. And The language used is just absolutely ridiculous. And I had a, I mean, when I said they write comedy, there's a couple parts in this piece where I just laughed out loud because it was so stupid. You, you, you can't You can't say anything but that. And it's sad that you have to say that about a piece at Law & Liberty. Every, again, every now and then they write a clunker like this. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because you know they're trying to appeal to you know, left libertarians or mainstream libertarians, the Cato-type people. Um, I, I'm not certain um, where they get this, but I know why they do it. Look, I know why the people that write this stuff do it, because they don't want to be called all kinds of bad names. It, I, I talked about this with Ryan McMakin in secession last week. He doesn't want to be called out for... Uh, you know, supporting someone like John C. Calhoun because Calhoun said positive things about slavery. Well, that's not the most interesting or important part about Calhoun's political career at all, in any way. But if you use, if it's easier to use Mises and Rothbard, even though Mises has now been called a Nazi and Rothbard's been called a Klan member, it's easier to use them than it would be John C. Calhoun. So um, this is where these people are running scared. And this is, again, well, I'm going to reiterate this with Harry Jaffa, why Harry Jaffa wanted to make equality a conservative principle. Because if you do that, it takes all the sting out of conservatism. They can't claim that you are trying to throw a granny off a cliff or reinstitute segregation or slavery, anything like that, if you say, well, equality is conservative. You supposedly disarm the other side, but you know what? It doesn't work because the other side won't ever believe it. And the other side will always take their position, which is equity, and say that's real equality. And where do we stop? And I mean, Paul Gottfried, as we've talked about in this program, has pointed this out several times. So that's the real issue with the Straussians, the West Coast Straussians, the neoconservatives, the left libertarians, the establishment libertarians. They're delusional, and uh, this is, you know, the, the real issue when it comes to where we go with a cogent message on. American history, the American founding, the American conservative tradition, the American political tradition, whatever it is, however you want to define it, we've essentially got uh, two groups that are fighting over semantics on the left and the right. And the left is going to win that argument every single time. Every single time. There's not going to be a way that, uh, you know, the Michael Antons and Harry Jaffas and, uh, you know, West Coast Straussians and the Neocons and left libertarians will ever win this argument. They can't because they don't deliver the goods. If you're going to argue for equity, then it's going to come, or equality, and then the left is going to take it equity. At the end of the day, the left will always say, you're not committed because you don't really believe in real equality, real equity, which is economic equity, which is social equity, which is all the things that go into it. You don't believe in it. You, you are simply just a softer hate monger. And you're still a hate monger, but you're lying to us. So this is the problem. So let me get into this piece from uh, Law and Liberty. It's written by Andrew Lang. Okay, Andrew Lang. The title is Lincoln's Invocation of God. Now, first of all, Lincoln was a Christian nominally. Nominally at best. You read what people had said about him um, at the time. Lincoln was nominally a Christian. Now, he would use the Bible in biblical allusions to, his, to benefit his positions, but there's no evidence that he really ever believed any of this stuff. And look, in the 19th century, if you weren't alluding to the Bible or drawing parallels from the Bible, you weren't doing your job as an orator because people expected that. In the 19th century, you still had a—I mean, look—the majority of the American population, a large majority, the vast majority of the American population, were still devoutly Christian people, and so if you didn't do this on a regular basis, people would think you were a fraud. You weren't—you uh, weren't religious enough, and so you had very few individuals that would not refer back to the Bible in defending their positions. On both sides, for example, of the slavery issue, you had Southerners defending their positions based on Scripture. You had Northerners defending their positions based on Scripture. Of course, you also had a lot of race-baiting involved in this too, North and South, which is the funniest part of all of this. There's a paragraph here where he uh, brings up Alexander Stevens, and Lincoln has this visceral reaction to it, which he probably didn't because uh, the fact is, Lincoln would have rejected Stevens' portrayal of the United States government so we'll get into that in a minute alright so here's the piece the day of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address presented an ominous metaphor to a republic ravaged by civil war an ominous metaphor it's God reigning on the, the republic now first of all we don't have a singular republic we had a federal republic even uh, you know Republicans would try to make this point Uh, Their 1860 platform would have, I mean, couldn't have confused it for someone who was advocating a singular republic. They, in fact, bring up states' rights in it. I mean, they, they are certainly interested in state powers, and if they weren't, then they would have abolished slavery throughout the North during the war, which they didn't do. There were still northern states, quote unquote, northern states that had slavery until 1865, months after the war was over. So their commitment. At least, um, in some ways, to a centralized republic um, was not universal. Now, they did believe in centralizing power. They did believe in reducing the power of the states ultimately. But I mean, look—even recognizing they needed the Thirteenth Amendment to abolish slavery, does you know, in a in a way, uh, show that they at least understood federalism to an extent. Now, you can say that the Fourteenth Amendment then was. An attempt to nationalize everything. Um, even though there, they still left the states alone to do a lot of things. So, uh, look, the beginning of centralization of power, the beginning of the empire is found in the Republican Party and the Lincoln uh, regime. And I make this point throughout McClanahan Academy courses. I made it here. But to say that we had a singular republic um, is, again, not historically accurate. And even the Republicans, would have said as much to an extent in 1864-65, I should say, when Lincoln was giving his second inaugural. A cold, miserable rain greeted the exhausted assemblage who gathered before the U.S. Capitol to hear their chief implore renewed dedication to a remorseless struggle to hear their chief. This is just silly language. To hear their chief. Who calls the president a chief? I mean, what is this? Now, I know nowadays, it's, uh, that's my commander-in-chief. Nobody did that back then. This is just stupid. But as the president rose, the skies cleared and the sun shone. It was as if God himself pined to hear his humble servants appeal to heaven. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> I, sometimes and, and, I, and I published a I put a picture up on social media again of a book that was Lincoln you know shining down from the heavens. I don't know what to do with these things sometimes, but this is how far the Lincoln myth has gone. Lincoln is a God. this is God Lincoln is Jesus Christ essentially. this is what this is kind of God's humble servant. Lincoln is a prophet from God. You can't make this up. this is what the Romans did with their political leaders and making temples to them. This is what we've done with Abraham Lincoln. We've got a temple to Abraham Lincoln. It's absolutely ridiculous. Stupid. Stupid. I, I, again, I don't know what word to use other than stupid for this kind of nonsense. And like I said, who knew that Long Liberty wrote comedy? Because this is this is comical. It's clown world. I know we use that term a lot now. It's overused now. But this really is clown world. Yet, rather than ushering in the dawn of a glorious future, Lincoln delivered a sermon on the divine judgments of history. A sermon. So, when you've got a Democrat now in the halls of Congress, it says this is a sacred place. You've got Joe Biden calling the Capitol sacred. And this moron, Andrew Lang, is going to use the term sacred with the Declaration of Independence, we've got real issues in America. We've got bigger issues than, uh, than people realize. When you start elevating secular buildings, government buildings, to religious stature, when you start elevating documents, secular documents, to religious structure, uh, stature, when you start making people like Abraham Lincoln servants of God, I mean, you want to talk about where we are in Rome? This is it. This is it. We might as well uh, you know, go to the temple of Abraham Lincoln and start sacrificing animals to please the gods. We might as well go and have the Vestal Virgins there with the never-ending fire, the flame, keeping it going at the Lincoln Temple to show that Lincoln uh, is still the greatest of all. Might as well do that. right? I mean, this is, this is just Stupid. On that day in March 1865, Lincoln asked his fellow citizens to consider why God wrung American blood to effect his holy will in accounting for the nation's collective sin of slavery. Now again, you would have a lot of people, North and South, theologians throughout American history, this is if you take my American slavery course I get into this, who would have disagreed with the judgment that Andrew Lang is passing here on the United States because they would use biblical references to defend their positions of pro-slavery. North and South, the very first pro-slavery defense was made in Massachusetts in 1701 by a theologian named John Saffin. So the biblical defense of slavery actually had a longer standing uh, than the biblical attack on slavery true i mean so the 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 pro-slavery theologians were more powerful throughout most of american history than the anti-slavery theologians so this was in many ways a theological debate now i'm not saying that the pro-slavery people were correct but what i'm saying here is that you can't do this because there's some real issues with this kind of you know hero worship history because that's all this is you want to talk about a real myth this is it His query embodied a lifetime in introspection into the mysteries of providence, the consequences of time, and the enduring battle between good and evil. No, Lincoln didn't do that his entire lifetime. This guy was a charlatan. He was a shyster. It's a question whether he could really even read that well. Honest Abe was called Honest Abe because he never told the truth. He told a lot of far-flung stupid jokes that nobody really believed, that everybody thought he was just a jokester, a comedian, someone who couldn't be trusted. And of course, he was a hack. He he shilled for the corporations that paid him more money. He had the biggest house in Springfield across from the courthouse. This guy was a hack. And there's nothing else you can say about it. He was a politician's politician, but now it's a lifetime of introspection into the mysteries of Providence. Lincoln's hollowed address. I mean, are we sure that Lincoln did not walk on water before this? That he didn't turn, uh, you know, he he didn't provide food for the masses with another miracle. He didn't heal the sick before this speech was made. I mean, again, he didn't lay his hands on people before him. This is just stupid. His hollowed address informs the scope of renowned writer John Meacham's landmark biography of this most vital 19th century American. Now, I do agree that Lincoln is a vital 19th century American, which is why I have a class at McClanahan Academy reading Abraham Lincoln. And if you want the real Lincoln, not this kind of stupidity, go get that class. It's great. And there was light. That's the title of the book. And there was light. You can't make this up. You can't make this up. Confronts Lincoln in all his simple complexity. An ambitious yet skeptical individual. A stoic yet dogmatic politician. Well, let's just take out the first part. How about just politician? How about we take out skeptical? Would you say ambitious politician? A resolute yet compassionate statesman. No, no. How about we just leave that part out so we can have a an ambitious politician? We also traverse Lincoln's world, stirred by the rowdy cords of a nascent democracy and moved by an alluring Protestant supplication. (laughs) No, it wasn't. Again, there's questions. People were questioning whether Lincoln was an atheist. He didn't believe in any of this stuff. And when we enter Lincoln's mind, the very currents that fueled his intellectual spirit stimulate us. No, they don't. This is you find that he's a second-rate mind. I mean, when you go into Lincoln's world, you find he's a very good speaker, but he says a lot of nothing. His, his speeches are word salad. They mean nothing. It's just a bunch of platitudes and allusions to nothing. They're speeches to the stupid in society, the lowest common denominator, because people would think, oh, wow, he's so eloquent. He's so eloquent. Well, I believe it. He's duping morons. There's a lot of those people in America. Meacham's Lincoln does not reside in the remote past. He is rather a vessel on which to navigate a fractured political world, a sage to unbind our exasperating age of postmodern relativism. This man is America's philosopher. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Again, if you're listening to John Meacham, you're already in trouble. Lincoln embodies how a committed citizenry, though often delayed, can secure moral justice. How a committed citizenry, though often delayed, can secure moral justice. I mean, it sounds like uh, you know some leftists wrote this. Go figure. Lincoln is there, Meacham thus writes, an example of how even the most imperfect of people, leading the most imperfect of peoples, can help bend that arc. Well, Lincoln, an imperfect person, is leading imperfect people. But yet, they figure out moral justice. Isn't that beautiful? Meacham nevertheless warns against the seduction of inevitability. Channeling Lincoln's belief that a more perfect union is hardly destined. It is for us the living, rather, Lincoln instructed at Gettysburg to ensure that government of the people, by the people, for the people, should not perish from the earth. Yeah, I mean, look, Southerners would have agreed with this. They would have said, well, then leave us alone. We had a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We had that. We had democratically elected popular conventions that said, we don't want to be part of your government anymore. We've done exactly what the Declaration said we should do. We altered or abolished our system of government. I mean, so. And you're saying that you're fighting for that? Everyone knew this was a crock. Even Lincoln himself said it. Uh, I'm not going to say much here. The newspapers called it a dishwatery utterance, a dishwatery utterance. And yet, supposedly, this is American scripture. The Gettysburg Address. Gary Wills said it best. Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. That's not a good thing. He made it up. From his meek roots in the Kentucky backcountry to his profession as an Illinois attorney and through the White House itself, Lincoln abided by a philosophy that all people possess natural claims to reason and conscience from which to discern demonstrable right from wrong. Um, if you want to say that, Or you could just say that Lincoln was trying to figure out how to get people to vote for him. Or Lincoln was trying to figure out how to win a case before a jury. He was trying to persuade people. I'm not so certain Lincoln really ever believed this. I mean, he does make statements like this in his speeches. So I guess if you say that you believe what he's saying... With firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, he counseled in the second inaugural, a free citizenry holds the ability to pursue, if not the prerogative to assure objective moral truth. The American people maintained a unique obligation to learn the history of their nation and uphold the logic of its founding charters. Threatened by the United States possibly becoming a uniform slave nation, Lincoln appealed to the human heart, Beseeching his fellow citizens to act according to the central idea of American nationhood. The central idea of American nationhood. So we're gonna go with the proposition nation here. Of course, this is Lang writing this stuff. He counseled, right? He's giving a sermon here. This is a moral truth that Lang says, an objective moral truth, a unique obligation to learn the history of their nation. The logic of its founding charters. And that would be the proposition nation. Again, you can't find a better here at, at uh, Law and Liberty of uh, a better piece on the proposition nation. Myth. I mean, that's what it is. <clears throat> Only the by living the declarations creed that all men are created equal, would generations of free people fulfill the golden charge of treating others as you would be treated? So, uh, yeah. I mean, again, the proposition nation. Now, the commitment to that from the founding generation, it was tepid at best. We know that they put in their state constitutions, Bill of Rights, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but their commitment to it, if you look at overall and how they acted, was tepid at best. They didn't really believe this stuff. Barry Shane has a really good book at Liberty Fund, by the way. Liberty Fund publishes it, that tears apart the Proposition Nation nonsense. So, Liberty Fund can be a little bit uh, bipolar here. It's one or the other. Either they're for the Proposition Nation or they're not. And Maybe they just do that because they have different kind, they're trying to appeal to different kinds of readers, but um, But anyways, beyond the acute examples of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Daniel Webster, and Henry Clay, Meacham also explores an influential cohort who animated Lincoln's political philosophy. We encounter the anti-slavery Baptists of Lincoln's youth. William Grimshaw, a popular historian of the American Revolution. Cassius Clay, a prominent anti-slavery Kentuckian. Theodore Parker, the celebrated Unitarian theologian. Phineas Gurley, President Lincoln's Presbyterian minister. John Bright, a British liberal who championed the cause of union. And Frederick Douglass, the nation's foremost African-American abolitionist. Their rich direction guided Lincoln's unbending faith in self-government and his commitment to preserving the principle of natural equality for the nature and the world. Now think about that. Their rich These people are all rich. This is rich direction. And his commitment to self-government. I mean, if he really did believe that in self-government, he would have let the South go in peace because that was self-government. So, I, I just, I question how these people can even make statements like this. Are are they really this blind, or are they somehow, uh, you know, just they just believe in the? I mean, so much in the proposition nation they can't. I mean, it doesn't even factor into their thought. Metrim's central theme—the national struggle to preserve, preserve, I'm sorry, pursue moral right amid the malevolence of human bondage—connects Lincoln's anti-slavery impulse to his devotion to the American Union and the divine counsel of God. The national struggle to preserve moral right. Again, the righteous cause myth. I mean, you can't have a more idiotic peace. The righteous cause myth. The people didn't go to war for this. Lincoln himself said he didn't go to war for that. He would have preserved slavery everywhere he could. In fact, he proposed to do it. The 13th Amendment, the original 13th Amendment, he proposed to preserve slavery. In the States, it already existed. And, uh, I mean, it probably would have existed for a long time there. He adopts the logic enmeshed in Lincoln's house-divided schema to explain how slavery imposed fundamental, irreconcilable, and moral differences upon a nation that could not remain half-slave and half-free. As Lincoln pronounced in 1854, the natural right of human equality diverged from the iniquitous right to enslave another. Such claims are as opposite as God and mammon, and whoever holds the one must despise the other. Now, I've talked about this speech in, again, um... My reading Abraham Lincoln class, and I go through it in detail, and I'm gonna—I t- mean, you're you're not gonna get John Meacham nonsense out of me. Um, but Lincoln was willing to allow this to continue, even as president, because he advocated the 13th Amendment. The original 13th Amendment. Daniel Crofts has done a fantastic job pointing this out. This was really Lincoln's amendment. His fingerprints were all over it. For Lincoln, the founding of 1776 inaugurated an unprecedented moment in human affairs. Guided by his ancient faith, which teaches me that all men are created equal, that there can be no moral right in connection with one man's being a slave of another, Lincoln identified the Constitution and Union as the foremost means by which to fulfill the Declaration's ideal of placing slavery on the course of ultimate extinction. Um, Look... (laughs) Again, I'm not going to steal my own thunder for, for Lincoln here himself. This is more an indictment, I think, this piece of Andrew Lang and John Meacham than anything else. This is bad history. Really bad history. It's presentism on at the highest level. Amid the overwhelming corpus of Lincoln tomes, Meacham makes a sensitive contribution to Lincoln's religiosity. As a young man, Lincoln struggled with questions of divine will. He nevertheless sensed the world gripped in a supernatural struggle between virtue and malice. I mean, good God, what the heck is going on here? Lincoln didn't do that. To what extent did God mediate this eternal dispute? Lincoln did not know. But as he matured, particularly when he engaged in the natural debates, uh, national debates over slavery during the 1850s, Lincoln came to see history not as an arbitrary or random process. The world was rather defined by a moral drama in which God furnishes people with clues and a compassionate soul to discern his will. When God's children ignored or cursed his holy designs, they confronted an inevitable punishment foretold in the Old Testament. For Lincoln, perpetuating American slavery, beckoned the Lord's wrath. Lincoln, again, look at what he's doing here. He's turning Lincoln into a minister, right, a religious figure, which Lincoln was not in any way, in any way. But this is what the neoconservative right, the Straussian right, and the left attempts to do, because it gives them a moral high ground that they think they can oppose the other side with. But there would have been people in 1865, if they read this, they would have been laughing out loud at this nonsense, because they, this is not Abraham Lincoln that we know. It's not the Abraham Lincoln that we see. It's not the Abraham Lincoln that we hear. This is the Abraham Lincoln that people like John Meacham create. Alan Gelzo, John Meacham. You take your pick of these modern Lincoln scholars, quote unquote, that do this stupid stuff. Slavery is founded in the selfishness of man's nature, he spoke in 1854. Opposition to it is in his love of justice. These principles are eternal antagonism, and when brought into Collision so fiercely as slavery extension brings them. Shocks and throes and convulsions must ceaselessly follow. Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in creating those things, that will happen. I mean, because think about this. For, For decades, Americans extended slavery, and none of that stuff happened. Until you had people... That started making those things happen, which would have been you know, people that were interested in free white labor, free white men, free white uh, land. I mean, this is free soil. I mean, this is what they were. You had people that were interested in that when they didn't want blacks around them. I mean, look, all you got to do, there's even Eric Foner points this out in free soil, free labor, free men. Or you've got uh, the frontier against slavery. You've got north of slavery. I mean, this stuff is well-known, but not to these dopes who push the Lincoln myth. Lincoln long believed in the capacity of representative institutions to abolish slavery gradually through moral suasion and public consent. But when secessionists in 1860-61 severed the Union to build an independent slave-holding nation, their act blasphemed the sacred declaration and shattered lawful constitutional process. This is one that I laughed out loud. Their act blasphemed the sacred declaration. Yeah, it's, I mean, the declaration is the Bible and independence. The very thing that the declaration did, it was a secession document, blasphemed the very document that supported it. You can't make this up. Lincoln took seriously Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens' audacious testament that the slaveholding republic is the first in the history of the world, based upon the great physical, philosophical, and moral truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. Well, Lincoln, Lincoln probably took that seriously because he believed it. He be- well, he, he would, well, I say he believed that, that, in that in that statement, but he would also say, well, this is also the United States. I mean, John C. Calhoun called the United States government, the white man's government. This is what was said over and over again in the West. This is the white man's government. It has no place for slavery. It's the white man's government. It's why Lincoln wanted to boot blacks out of the United States. He believed that the United States seemed to be the white man's government. This novel, hubristic polity, now viewed, now vied, I'm sorry, to control the very continent on which the American fathers once brought forth a new nation conceived in liberty and committed to human equality. Now, I mean, yeah, that's, this paragraph is just the dumbest in the entire piece. Maybe, well, I say that because the end the conclusion is also pretty stupid. But this one is really bad. I mean, it's awful. Here, Meacham thrives in surveying Lincoln's swift evolution and seeing the Civil War not merely as a political crisis, but as a spiritual battle that engulfed Americans and their divine maker. How did Lincoln arrive at this mystic proposition? He committed his presidency to untangling why God acted in a specific place in a specific time in the United States of America in the mid-19th century to impart a prophetic message about the dignity of all individuals. No, he didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. In December of 1862, he's writing a constitutional amendment that would allow slavery to exist into the 20th century. As late as 1865, he's trying to boot blacks out of the United States. Lincoln didn't do any of this stuff. This is just absolute stupidity look, I could keep uh, keep going here, but let me go down to the last couple of paragraphs because because um, he, he Lang tries to confront what I just said there. Meacham does not recite a tired trope about Lincoln's seemingly tardy move toward emancipation. Lincoln may not have been a political radical. He, he wasn't and it's tardy this tardy trope it's all true. So see, what they're doing and trying to, well, this is just trope when you say Lincoln wasn't really that committed to uh, emancipation. It's true. So, I mean, when you're trying to create gods and you're trying to create some mythical figure, well, then it just becomes a trope. History doesn't matter. What matters is the image. What matters is the myth. He was a political realist who explained to his people the necessity of radical means of national preservation. The Confederate war impressed upon the loyal citizenry a fierce urgency to either save the Union or lose the Union. Fundamental to the survival of self-government and the national soul, Lincoln insisted that a core of moral commitment to liberty must survive the vicissitudes of politics, the prejudices of race, and the contests of interests. But Lincoln was also a politician who was making concessions the entire time Because, well, this is what Lincoln really believed. And, he's well, this is a trope. Emancipation eliminated sectional toxins and the source of disunion. It did? Are you sure? It eliminated sectional toxins. This is why we had split government, essentially sectional government, all throughout the 19th century, into the 20th century. We didn't have slavery anymore. But yet, we still had sectional divisions. So it was all about slavery. We still had it. And, I mean, uh, national preservation, radical means of national preservation. Self-government, at survival here? No, it wasn't. The United States still had self-government. The Confederacy still had self-government. All that still existed. If you had two separate self-governing entities, you still had it. So what Lincoln was trying to do was consolidate and crush the spirit of self-government forever. But the measure also fulfilled a spiritual obligation to relieve a republic of liberty from the vile sway of racial castes and class privilege. Are you talking about the same Republicans that that allowed for segregation in public schools? The same Republicans that said this is, again, uh, this is a government for white men? The same Republicans that complained about blacks in Washington, D.C.? The same Republicans that uh, had passed legislation in Illinois that prohibited blacks from living there, the same Republicans that, when the war was over, the war is over, denied blacks the right to vote in some state including Connecticut, denied the blacks the right to vote. Are, this, are these the same Republicans that we're talking about here? Because I'm a little confused. Abolition may not have arrived gradually, as Lincoln long assumed. It had come from the terrible swift sword, wielded by God who moved the nations through his appointed time. (laughs) Okay, this is the most, again, this is a laughable part of the piece. When Lincoln surrendered his life, when he surrendered his life, he surrendered his life. His beloved union had survived. He departed the world conscious of Providence's guiding hand. How do we know this? For he had been a tool of God during his moment on (laughs) earth. You can you can't write more idiotic history than this. John Meacham's effective chronicle surveys far more than the life of Lincoln. It is a story of us and our daily struggle to see the light. Yeah. This is Andrew Lang, assistant professor of history at Mississippi State University. Yeah. Not the Andrew Lang that's, you know, the gun running for Congress. This is Professor Andrew Lang, who uh is an abject dope. But anyways, there you have it. A new book that tries to solidify as much as possible the Lincoln myth of American history. If you want to get me five times this week, make sure you catch the Abbeville Institute podcast. If not, I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.